You're listening to the Peace at Risk in Bosnia podcast. My name's James Smith. This is the time to act. The time to act is not going to be in six months, because in six months, if Mr. Dodik is allowed to run amok, we will be at war. The prospect of Bosnian Serb army being created, the prospect of a Bosnian Serb army barracks outside Sarajevo, that is not only untenable, it's an existential threat. So that, that, that is why the situation is as dangerous as it is. Dr. Amir Soljagic, director of the Srebrenica Genocide Memorial Center, on the intent expressed by Bosnian Serb leader Milorad Dodik to break the Dayton peace accords by re-establishing the army of Republika Srpska, the army that was responsible for genocide at Srebrenica in 1995. Mark my words, if this gentleman is allowed to continue doing this without consequences, this country is going to be at war six months from now. Welcome to Peace at Risk in Bosnia, a three-part podcast by the Aegis Trust, an organisation that works to prevent genocide and build peace through education. I'm James Smith, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Aegis. Over the next three episodes, I'll be talking to Bosnians who can help us understand the current crisis in Bosnia, the context in which it's taking place, and solutions which may help to avert renewed bloodshed. Episode 1. Roots. To understand the present crisis, we need to return to Bosnia's recent past, to the war of 1992-95 and the genocide at Srebrenica which Emir Soljagic survived as a 17-year-old translator for United Nations peacekeepers. I had no skills, I had no knowledge, I had nothing that would make it possible for me to survive short of knowing a few hundred words of English, which is why I survived, there's, there's no other way. But because I knew those few hundred words of English, I ended up having a front row seat to the international abdication of responsibility that gave Ratko Mladic and Bosnian Serb troops the latitude, the freedom to conduct the genocidal operation at Srebrenica and kill over 8,000 men within the time space of five days. And I saw it back then. And I still, I see it again. I see the exact same abdication of responsibility. Emir is scathing about the international community's failure to safeguard peace in the Balkans in the early 1990s. He sees a repeat of those same historical mistakes today. To be honest, I mean, going back to 1991 and how the international community acted like like an elephant in a china shop, what they're doing now reminds me very much of how they bungled the chances for at least a peaceful dissolution of Yugoslavia back in 1991 and early 1992. I've spent the last 20 years researching the dissolution of Yugoslavia. I don't know many things about many things, but few things I know. And one of those things is the dissolution of Yugoslavia. And when I look at that, I see that additional pressure. You know, the international community knowing what it wanted in in former Yugoslavia would have actually prevented violence. And Milosevic was on the brink of of reconciling with that. Uh, But then, 
you know, came January 1992, and this whole idea that we should perhaps accommodate the requests of Radovan Karadzic. And every time the international community came in, into Bosnia, the first group that they tried to pressure was the, either the Bosnian government or anyone representing Bosnians, because they assume we are the weakest and we'll be willing to concede. Now they're pretty much doing the same thing. They're saying, oh, you need to talk to Milorad Dodik. Milorad Dodik, a name we'll hear a lot. Dodik is the Serb member of Bosnia's tripartite presidency, which we'll hear more about later. And Milorad Dodik is the kind of guy going around saying that we're not a people in a proper sense of the word. I mean, he's basically saying that Bosnian Muslims are untermensch. And he's getting away with that. Untermensch. A derogatory term used by Nazis for Jews, Roma, Slavs, Blacks and others excluded from the Aryan master race. There isn't a single international envoy out there who would say, listen, Mr. Dodik, this is dehumanization and we're not going to talk to you. You're not going to be part of any conversation unless you give up on that vocabulary because that vocabulary is not just words. These are weapons. These are bullets. These words have the power of bullets. These words have the power to kill. And we've seen that in the 90s. And I really don't understand what is so unclear 25, 26 years later. As director of the Srebrenica Genocide Memorial Center and currently living nearby, Emir is part of a very small Bosnian Muslim community that returned after the genocide to this corner of Republika Srpska, the Serbian part of Bosnia. It's not always a comfortable existence. When people started coming back here, and that was some 20 years ago, it wasn't a peaceful process. Returnees were killed, beaten up. There were all kinds of obstacles in the way of the return. All the policies by the, the Serb government, by the Serb authorities, whether local or authorities from Banja Luka, have been designed to send a message that we are not welcome here, that we're alien to this part of the country, that we're alien to this area. And that's been the life of this minority that was a majority some 26 years ago. And through genocide, they've been reduced to a minority. And now this minority is being, and has been for the last 20 years, threatened, discriminated, intimidated. And now we're being threatened with violence. You know, it's, it's not a matter of politics any longer. This is not politics. This is people coming to our homes again and saying, you know, you got to get out or we're going to kill you. No one least of all genocide survivors, should have to live with intimidation because of their identity. Yet threats have been part of their lived experience in Bosnia for decades. The threats that we're facing today are unfortunately not something very new. I just feel that these past couple of months they've been more often and they've been in a way grouped together. Tatiana Milovanovic is program director for the Post-Conflict Research Center in Sarajevo. They're responsible for remarkable grassroots peacebuilding work with young Bosnians. And we'll hear a lot more from Tatiana later in this series. Dodik has a history of all these threats, and it mostly started with investigations into his work that were done by the prosecutor's office and the state court of Bosnia and Herzegovina. The ethnic Hatred, the hate speech, the denialism of war crimes and genocide, 
It's mostly for personal gain. In the last local elections, Dodik's party, for example, lost a lot of that local power. And unfortunately, ethnic hate and ethnic division is incredibly good tool and fuel for popularity. That doesn't make it any less serious. Uh, I would just like mm-hmm. to, in a way, underline that. And mm-hmm. the fact that we've been seeing this for many, many years now also doesn't make it less serious. It just means that it's been building up. Dr. Hikmet Karcic, genocide scholar and senior researcher at the Institute for Islamic Tradition of Bosniaks in Sarajevo, agrees. There's no other reason for this crisis right now other than the fact that the leadership in Belgrade and in Banja Luka is so corrupt and so involved in different criminal activities that nationalism and the threat of war is the only way for them to keep in power. If motivated by political self-interest and corruption, are these threats merely theatrics which can be safely ignored? Karcic doesn't think so. He identifies the return of a dangerous expansionist ideology. So in the 1990s, we heard the idea of greater Serbia. And uh, so far, uh, what we have been told is that this idea is something of the past. It doesn't exist anymore and so on. But what we heard in the last couple of weeks and months is the new idea of Serbian world, Srpski uh, Svet, which in reality is just new speak for greater Serbia. Because uh, right now, the minister of police, um, Alexander Volin, in, uh, in Serbia is calling for a unified political sphere in all uh, areas where Serbs live. This very much reminds us of what Slobodan Milosevic and Radovan Karadzic and all the others talked about 30 years ago. And of course, this is something which is quite frightening because we just realized that for the last 30 years, we've been living in a whole entire rhetoric of war and it's still not ending. Milosevic and Karadzic respectively presidents of Serbia and Republika Srpska during the 1990s. The first sitting head of state charged with war crimes, Milosevic died while on trial at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, or ICTY. Convicted of genocide at the ICTY, Karadzic is today serving his full life sentence in a British prison. But where does the idea of Srpski Sviet or Greater Serbia, actually come from? Karcic again. Well, the idea of creating a greater nation-state actually goes back to the era when nation-states were being built in in Europe. Unfortunately, this idea is very popular among the the Serbian uh, political and academic elites. And you can see this line in thinking, which believes that Serbia deserves to have all the lands where Serbs live, but also all the lands where the Ustasha committed genocide against Serbs in the Second World War. The Ustasha fanatical Croatian allies of the Nazis, who ruled over large swathes of the Western Balkans. During the Second World War, the Ustasha exterminated many Jews, Roma and Serbs, crimes for which there was very little accountability. These atrocities today help fuel Serb nationalism. So their aspirations are not only towards Bosnia, but also towards Macedonia, towards Kosovo, towards parts of Croatia and so on. So this idea is not only a threat to Bosnia and to Bosniaks, it is also a, a much more larger security threat in the Balkans. One small ignition in Bosnia, in Sarajevo, one shot fire in Bosnia would create a huge security risk in the whole region. 
What does it mean for us? Well, basically for us Bosniaks, we are viewed by Serb nationalists as a residue of the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottoman Empire left Bosnia in 1878. Since we are Slavic Muslims, we are considered by Serb nationalists as Serbs who converted to Islam 500 years ago. And for this reason, we need to be punished. This whole idea of price killers and and the idea of betrayal still is very popular and not only that it has become very much popular among the global far right movement in the world today the global far right their role is something we'll look at further in the next episode context back to serb nationalism though how do expansionists square their vision of a serbian world in which there's no place for muslims with the role this ideology played in genocide at Srebrenica. Based in Los Angeles, Dr. Yasmin Mujanovic is a political scientist, analyst of Southeast European and international affairs, and the author of a 2018 book, Hunger and Fury, The Crisis of Democracy in the Balkans. Serb nationalist political rhetoric basically vacillates between either these events never took place, or these events never took place, but it would have been good if they did, or the still most extremist version that I think is still fundamentally at the heart of it, because you you get at it very quickly once you scratch the surface, which is not necessarily denial, but it's glorification, which is to say, these events did happen, we did it, it's a good thing that we did it, and we'll do it again. For Mijanovic, who left Sarajevo as a refugee at the age of five, the present crisis feels personal. My oldest daughter is now approaching about the age that I was when my family was forced to flee Sarajevo. And this is something that might very well be part of her life story, that it won't just be something that her father or her grandparents went through. Um, That feels profoundly personal, and it really feels like a failing because I'm still a relatively young person, but I've devoted essentially my entire professional career to preventing these kinds of things from ever happening again in Bosnia or the region. And unfortunately, at this hour, it doesn't really seem like we've succeeded. Using any kind of timeline, whether we're thinking six months or 12 months or, you know, some indeterminate point in the future, it's unfortunately more likely that we will see some kind of low intensity security incident that might very well spiral, unfortunately, out of control. And that certainly alarms me very, very deeply as, as both a Bosnian, but also someone more broadly concerned about the stability and security of the entire region, but with that also the entire European continent. For Hikmet Karcic, another war could mean the third round of displacement in three generations, the previous being World War II and then the Bosnian War of the 1990s. In the worst possible case, what will happen is sometime in the next six months, probably on the spring, around March, April, because all troubles in the Balkans start in March and April, uh, you're going to have some sort of controlled violence in certain towns in Bosnia. Not in all of Bosnia, but a small level of controlled violence in certain parts of the country, such as Brčko, Doboj and Sarajevo, will be a huge security risk because... Currently, what the Serbian regime in Belgrade and Boston, what they want is somebody from the Federation to fire the first shot, for them to have the justification to attack Bosnia. 
And that's that's something which I'm mostly afraid of. I'm af- I'm afraid of a false flag operation, which would then bring us to the brink of of a major war. During the crisis in Kosovo in 1999, I was there as a volunteer physician. Kosovan Albanians were fleeing violence from once again Serb nationalism, and I remember vividly being told by a medical colleague, a Kosovan Albanian doctor, how she and her family had packed their bags some three months before they were driven out of their town. It occurred to me then that when people at risk of atrocities begin to pack their bags, it's an early warning sign of something impending. And so alarm bells rang for me when, against the possibility of another war in Bosnia, Hikmet Karcic told me how he and his family are taking practical steps now. My father was around my age uh, when, when the war started in Bosnia in 1992. And we lived very near by the, the airport, so we, we felt the, the barricades and the shootings very early on, before the war broke out entirely over to the whole country. And one of the first things my dad did, and this was advice he got from his father and from his grandfather, who survived World War II, was that uh, he should, because they didn't do this in the 1940s, that he should take all his university diplomas and family photographs, family family albums, and gold or jewelry if you had at home, and, and put it in a duffel bag and, and keep it waiting somewhere near the door. Because these are the three most important things that you need to take if you want to leave your house very quickly. So uh, currently I'm at the stage where my wife and I are scanning our university diplomas, our personal documentation, and uploading it to the cloud, basically. Because even though a lot of Things have changed over the years and so on. I don't really know what is going to happen tomorrow in Bosnia. How are things going to play out? And I just want to have all my personal documentation and and everything else, family photographs, safe somewhere up in the cloud. The worst thing when when we have uh, situations like this, things uh, can escalate very quickly. So you can have a peaceful morning and in the afternoon you can have shellings. Karcic isn't the only one considering the need to move quickly. Here's Emir Solyagic again, speaking from Srebrenica. I'm a director of the Memorial Center here, and even though I'm not a I'm not a politician or anything, I'm still a public figure, and I can tell you the number of people, men mainly, who've asked me if the time has come for them to send their families, their wives and children, to Tuzla, which is. Bosniak majority town north of here or Sarajevo. Nobody is thinking of fleeing themselves, but nobody wants to see their families subject to the kind of treatment that they would have been in the 90s, which tells you everything that people, the survivors, are thinking about it again 26 years later for the second time in their in their lifetime. And then the concern has never been this serious. The concern has never been this deep. Tatiana Milovanovic believes their concerns are justified. Especially coming from communities such as Srebrenica that are in Republika Srpska, the part of the country that has the majority of, of Bosnian Serbs, while the majority of victims and survivors in that area are and were Bosnian Muslims. I think they, they're, the fears are very justified. Um, not to say again that there aren't ways and, and, and there aren't hopes for all this to go in a different and a better direction. A better direction. 
Given the status quo of Western accommodation for extremists in the Balkans, is that possible? Yasmin Mijanovic. The temptation, or rather the tendency in Washington and in the White House still tends to be to offload Balkans policy and Bosnian policy to the European Union. And the reality is that in the EU, you either have uh, states which are actively hostile to the interests of a territorially integrated sovereign and democratic Bosnia-Herzegovina, such as Hungary and others that we could name. And then you also have, I think, the, the mainline tendency, which is one of deference. And this has traditionally been the position of capitals like Berlin and Paris, who have basically been satisfied to deal with local actors in Bosnia and the region in such fashion that, you know, whoever makes the most noise and, and who's the most sort of alarming and militant, let's just make a deal with them and we'll create what are sometimes referred to pejoratively as these kind of stableocracies. And yet there are glimmers of hope. I'm cautiously optimistic we're really reaching the dead end of that policy in Bosnia because there's nowhere else for this thing to go, uh, what Mr. Dodik is doing presently, other than actual conflict, low intensity most probably, but conflict all the same. And I hope that that is recognized as a catastrophic outcome, both in Europe and the United States, and that, and that something very significant must change in order to avert that scenario. So it's not a rosy picture, as it were, uh, but I'm still, as one always has to be, cautiously optimistic that there is still at least the potential in the United States, and also very importantly in the United Kingdom, to take a different path vis-à-vis Bosnia policy. In the next episode, our contributors will take a deep dive into that geopolitical context for the present crisis, before we move to consider what solutions can be found. For now, though, the last word goes to Emir Solyagic. I'm not, and, and I know many other people are not, going to stand idly by and watch Serb nationalism and Serb nationalists do the same thing they did in the 90s. This is not going to happen, and everybody needs to hear that. Don't be telling us you need to negotiate with people who want to restore the very same capacity that was responsible for Srebrenica, for the siege of Sarajevo, for rape camps, for detention camps, for, for mass murder, for... Don't do that. We're not going to negotiate with them. I mean, you cannot be asking us that. It's just impossible. Because if we allow for this capacity that's been responsible for genocide to be restored for the second time in our lifetimes, then really it's a matter of how we can look at ourselves in the mirror. It's as simple as that. I mean, this may sound emotional, but it's not. It's, it's, it's a very cold calculus. Entire generations have been shaped by the experience of the 90s. Mr. Dodik may think that we are Wintermensch, but he's in for a really, really bad surprise. And, and if the international community wants to prevent that, now is the time to act. You have been listening to episode one of Peace at Risk in Bosnia, a three-part podcast by the Aegis Trust, an organisation that works to prevent genocide and build peace through education. For more information about Aegis and its work, please visit aegistrust.org. That's A-E-G-I-S trust.org.
The music, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4 international license, is Marais, composed by Kai Engel. The series has been produced by Richard Newell and David Brown, with series consultant Felicity Finch. Special thanks go to our contributors, Emir Solyagic, Tatiana Milovanovic, Hikmet Karcic, and Yasmin Mijanovic. My name's James Smith, founder and CEO of the Aegis Trust. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us for part two, in which we will explore in more detail the context behind this current crisis in Bosnia, 26 years after the Dayton Peace Agreement brought an end to war and genocide in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Mm-hmm.